one of the things that fascinates me about this is the way in which religion has always influenced popular culture, everything from drama to art to music, there is a there's an overlap of that Venn diagram right from the beginning of, of human history. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Positively Joy, a podcast on searching for the light in all seasons of life around us. We look for God in the everyday and choose joy even in the hard times. I'm your host, Yvette Walker, and I'd love for you to become a part of our online podcast family and join our Positively Joy community on Facebook. Visit PositivelyJoy.com for previous episodes and to check out our cool merch. And listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you go for podcasts. We drop episodes Monday and Thursday. Hi, everyone. It's Yvette Walker with the Positively Joy podcast. And this is going to be something really special. I have two guests here who are quite knowledgeable in pop culture, but also knowledgeable about the life of Christ and in many cases about religion in general. And I love pop culture. It does bring me joy. And that's what we're all about on this show. Um, but we thought that we would take this opportunity, be, especially as we move into Holy Week, because Palm Sunday is just a few days away. And I thought it would be great if we could talk about some of the depictions of the life of Christ. And there's many movies that are out now that you can actually watch. So we're going to get into it. So, all right, um, let's get going. I'm going to have my two guests introduce themselves. And uh, you will quickly see that we have got a lot of knowledge big knowledge bank going on right now. So uh, Leah, why don't you go first? Well, Yvette, thanks for welcoming me to your show. I'm the Reverend Dr. Leah Shade. I teach preaching and worship at Lexington Theological Seminary in Kentucky. I am an ordained Lutheran pastor, and I've uh, been ordained since for, for about 20 years. I've served three congregations, and I have written five books on everything from uh, environmental issues and preaching to um, uh, uh, political issues and how the church can navigate them. And I also have a blog on Pathios called Eco Preacher, where I look at the intersections of justice, religion, social issues, pop culture, and everything in between. Thank you, Leah. Ben. My name is Ben Hollenbach. I am a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Michigan. I received my bachelor's degree from Franklin and Marshall College in 2013 in anthropology and classics, uh, specializing in Roman art and archaeology. And moving into my PhD work, I now study LGBT inclusion and mainline Protestantism in the United States. So I do work in congregations that are working to be more welcoming towards queer members. I'm also an art nerd, a Bible nerd, and a pop culture nerd. So a triple threat. <laughs> We're so happy to have both of you here. So I met Leah first, uh, basically uh, online, as we do these days and learned uh, of her of her love for pop uh, pop culture and how um well actually i learned about her because she wrote an article and we're going to talk about that later but she wrote an article about a depiction of a priest in a, a netflix tv show again we'll talk about that in a minute 
And, um, but we, 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 we started talking and we quickly learned that we had a lot in common and we love pop culture and we love it. We love to see religion depicted. And sometimes it's in a good way and sometimes it's in a not so good way, but still it's all very interesting. And so as we continue to talk, we realized that, you know, Holy Week is coming up and there's so many depictions out there of the life of Christ and the end of the life of Christ. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we talked about this and then Leah thought of Ben and then the whole thing just came together. <laughs> um, so Leah, why don't you get started? Um, why, what interests you about pop culture and the way the life of Christ is depicted? Yeah, one of the things that fascinates me about this is the way in which religion has always influenced popular culture, everything from drama to art to music, there is a, there's an overlap of that Venn diagram right from the beginning of, of human history. Um, but it's also interesting to see the ways in which our modern popular culture will portray biblical stories, religion in general, religious leaders. And I'm because I'm um, both ordained and I teach students how to be pastors, it's very important to me to think about how are people perceiving religion and religious leaders portrayed through popular culture? Because that is going to have an impact on how people see that you're your normal everyday pastor in the pulpit and that's going to have an effect on congregational life and it's going to have an effect on the the relationships that are there both within the congregation and for the pastor in the wider community mm-hmm. and if these depictions get it wrong it can have a negative effect on those relationships it can because i think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what goes on in churches, um, how we how we preach, wh what our relationship is to money, um, the ways in which we are embracing or exclusive. Right now, there's a, a there are a lot of negative um, understandings of religion, especially mainline Protestant religion, um, that in some way is based in fact. We, we've seen a lot of problematic um, depictions and also the reality of um, the office of the, of the pastor being abused by those in power. So that is going to have an effect on this, but what it, it, we're, we're only seeing oftentimes the, the, these sort of salacious stories that are so overblown and not realizing that your your average normal everyday pastor is uh, is a usually a pretty good person and their communities are real down to earth people that are trying to understand how the, the the scripture and how their theology is to shape their lives and their communities mhm mm um ben uh so why are you so fascinated about this i'm drawn to the deep history that this has. Uh, people have been depicting Jesus artistically, whether that's through music, through visual art, uh, through more contemporary things like film and television, since very close to the time he actually lived. Uh, I think the first recorded image of Jesus comes to us from between the first and third century CE, and ever since then, 
uh, people have been making these depictions as teaching tools or, or as sort of setting a moral compass for folks. And the, the motivations behind those depictions have been different, but the, in, in many ways, they've also been similar in the sense of creating something that is, is either accurate or instructive or both. So I'm, I'm interested to be sort of connected to something that has thousands of years of precedent and, and probably hundreds if not thousands into the future of, of continuing to sort of wonder who is this person? Uh, how, do we, how do we represent this person in a way that, um, that speaks to people and, and that touches people? Yvette, can I just yeah. add here that, um, you know, the the way Ben and I first met each other was when I was a pastor at the last congregation I served, United in Christ Lutheran Church in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and Ben applied to be our office administrator. And that's how we first met. And so we would have lots of conversations about these kinds of things. And one of the things that Ben did in our congregation was has stuck with people to this day. He did an adult forum about asking the question, did Jesus have a beard? And it was great because he put together this entire PowerPoint presentation with all of these different depictions of Jesus throughout history. And because we think now of Jesus as having a beard, but in the early depictions, you know, when you see the artwork on house churches and from archaeological sites, Jesus looks like a, a you know, a, a young man with, you know, well-shaven. And, and so it's really interesting to see that how the depictions of his face, his skin color, his eyes have developed over the centuries. And that's one of the things that I've learned from Ben through all of this. I love that. I love that. You know, and some of these depictions have been divinely inspired, and but many have not been divinely inspired. And so I think, yeah, so I think there's always a question. Um, and then I think we're always very curious about what Jesus looks like. Like, what could he have looked like? Recently, and and you know this, Ben, because of, you know, anthropology, um, and, I, and I don't know if this, if this was released by... Oh gosh, I don't know, but a but a but an image based on what a man would have looked like at that time came out, and it certainly kicked in the teeth the 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 old uh, you know expression of what he might have looked like because um, this man was darker skinned. I believe he did have a beard, you know, had a nose that would be common to a man of that time. So. It's really interesting. Now, I saw a, there used to be a show called Insight that was produced by the Paulist Fathers um, out of California. This was like in the 60s and 70s. I'm really showing my age. And um, it was always a great half hour TV show because it always asked some incredible question. And Ben, you're nodding. You're way too young to, but do you, are you familiar with this? I've heard of it, yes. It's really good, and you can still find it probably on YouTube. But there was one about an artist who painted God. And and so the, the show would show you people looking at the painting and how they were transfixed, and it just affected them so much. And then when the camera sh ultimately shows us 
the canvas it's blank I probably shouldn't ruin it. I, I, now I've ruined it for everybody, but I don't know if you'll be able spoiler to- Spoiler alert. Spoiler, I know, I shouldn't do that. And by the way, there will be spoiler alerts. I mean, if you if you don't already know the life of Christ, there's gonna be lots of spoiler alerts in this, in this conversation, but I don't think you're gonna be able to find that episode of Insight. But that was, that. it brings me back to that. I think we, we are very curious. And when a movie comes out about the life of Christ and they they pick an actor, and I think we're always interested in who's the actor going to be. And, you know, I remember, uh, you know, in, in an early film, and, and this when I was a child at the time, but an early film with Jeffrey Hunter as the blue-eyed, piercing blue-eyed Christ, all the way to later depictions. And I, I think it's really interesting who they pick. I think everyone has an opinion about did they pick the right actor that Christ doesn't look like that? Yes, he does all of that. Well, for the purposes of this conversation, because we could talk about this for months and, and actually we have an announcement later on, it might make sense if we talk about uh, this and limit it to a few movies, including three of Ben's favorites. And Ben, if you wanna go ahead and announce your top three, I, I want to give a quick disclaimer before I give my top three that uh, I too have seen King of Kings with Jeffrey Hunter that came out, I believe, in 1961 um, and started a trend of these, these historical epics. They're sometimes called sword and sandals epics that, that uh, are these three-hour gargantuan films that trace um, films. And directors really had different... Um, styles of depicting Jesus, you know, and Jesus appears in the film Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, but you never see his face. And part of that is to, um, part of that is because depicting Jesus at all sort of is this biblical contradiction. First, we don't know what he looks like. Uh, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah is not beautiful or comely. So what does that mean? And then we have the second commandment says, don't make a graven image. Um, so I, my favorite films about Jesus are not these epic giants. Um, and they're, they're actually uh, each ones that came with a lot of scandal when they were released. Uh, they were controversial and they still are. So those are um, Martin Scorsese's 1988 Last Temptation of Christ with Willem Dafoe as Jesus. Um, the Norman Jewison adaptation of Jesus Christ Superstar in 1973 and an Italian film, uh, which was Pier Paolo Pasolini's 1964 Gospel According to St. Matthew. Okay, great. So, and I think Ben is going to give us probably um, uh, more of a tutorial about the Italian film, because I think we are a little bit less familiar with that. Um, but we can also, you know, we can also talk about a few others. I just think that if we um, just for the purposes of time, stick to maybe three or four that might might make the most sense. Um, and then, of course, we'll have our announcement at the end. So, Leo, um, why don't you talk a little bit about The Last Temptation of Christ and what you think that says in depicting Christ? Um, and and as, as you said, I mean, I remember when that movie came out and people were boycotting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, one of the things that, that strikes me about that film is the, the way it wrestles with the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. 
So again, spoiler alert, the, the last temptation is for him to simply live the life of a normal human being without the burden, the, the, the incredible burden of um, saving humanity from its sin. And what is so scandalous about that, first of all, the, in, the, in, in, this, in the Gospels, we think that the, the temptations end after he's been in the wilderness, which is after he's been baptized, and he has those temptations in the wilderness, uh, you know, turning stone into bread, uh, throwing himself down off the pinnacle, and, um, re, you know, being able to have control over all of the kingdoms of the world as long as he would bow down and worship Satan. So we think that, that that's the end of it. So the the imaginative turn that that this film makes to think that, like, as he is on, on the cross, that this is the final temptation to just give it all up and be just live a, 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 the normal life of a man is that's incredibly scandalous on so many levels, but it's so powerful because it really depicts what Christ struggled with in those moments. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I had to compare that with a, a contemporary film, just as far as the depiction of the you know, the, the goriness, I guess you could say, or the, the real physicality of, of the crucifixion and of how he was treated. Passion of the Christ probably would even top, would top it, would top yeah. it. But, but I, but I think, but I think that there was quite a bit in that film too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that one went a little over the top. That one represents the obsession with the blood. And, you know, that's the one that was directed by Mel Gibson. And I, I actually took a group from the church that I was serving at the time and we went to the movies and we watched it and it's, um, it's very disturbing, but it's, it's, it's unrealistic, you know, just the scene where he is whipped and there's no way that any human being could survive that. And, and it's to show the superhumanness of him, right? So here we have, so, so last temptation of Christ is showing his humanity. Yes. And this one is really showing his divinity because he was able to withstand that level of torture. I do have a favorite moment in that movie, but let me, let me see what Ben thinks about the, the passion of Christ. How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of problems with that film, actually. But and the root of that is really what you're talking about. Um, and I'll reveal a little bit of my theology here, which is just that I, I respond a bit better to portrayals of the, the humanity of Christ than this sort of superhumanity that you're talking about. Um, so something that's really effective about this film, about the the last temptation, is that the the character of Jesus is in no way sort of sure of himself as he goes mm. through. Um, it's almost sometimes like he's flying by the seat of his pants and doesn't really know what's going on. And how relevant is that to all of our lives, especially in a time like right now, where the the news changes from day to day and week to week, and so the the experience of of Jesus in that film is a lot more relatable because it's an experience that that we're having but 
the the fact that the son of God is also having that experience sort of brings the divine closer to us um, and lets us in and lets us identify. Whereas, like you said, in the in the passion of the Christ, the the besides its anti-Semitism, because there's a lot of it in that movie, um, the the main character is is so is so sort of stoic. And and that's a that's there's there's precedent for that, right? Go to any museum and look at Spanish polychrome sculpture from the the Renaissance, and you see these painted wooden um, images of Jesus dripping with really bright red blood. This this idea of sort of really hyper realistically depicting violence it has a precedent, but it's not it, it's not accessible in in that sort of way. I want to just add too that not only was it protested, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese, the director, received death threats. Um, a group of protesters set a theater on fire in Paris that was showing the film. Um, there, the, and there were widespread protests because the, the film was viewed as sacrilegious by many. And it might be a, a fair criticism in, in some scenes without spoiling too much, but... Um, and we're talking about The Last Temptation of Christ here. Right, right, yes. Yeah. Um, which is based on a book, which was also very controversial um, and is still one of the, you know, banned books that never goes off the banned book lists. Yeah. Um, so it it has a history of being controversial and the film was also highly controversial. So, I mean, we are going to spoil. Let's, I mean, I'll just say that. So what do you think, what was the primary driver behind the anger of these people toward this film? And both, either of you can answer that question. I think part of it is, um, as, as Ben said, really has to do with theology. And when you have a, a very high Christology, and so Christology is the, 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 the study of Christ, it's a theological category where you think about how is Christ portrayed. If you have a very high Christology where Jesus cannot have doubts, where Jesus has to be perfect, where Jesus has to know all, see all, and uh, uh, be beneficent, in, in, you know, um, then anything that depicts the, the the humanness of him is going to feel like an affront, and and it's going to feel. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure this is an accurate comparison, but in the same, I, I, my, the way I, as a Christian, the way I sort of compare it is when when people in the Muslim world get upset when people try to portray. Um, Muhammad, or or especially uh, seem to be doing it in a mocking way or a disrespectful way, and the kind of anger that engenders, it's for different it's for different reasons, but it still evokes that kind of protective um, sense of of your own religion and your own um, identity within that religion to the point where you're willing to do violent things yourself in order to stop this kind of portrayal from being out there in the public. Mm -hmm. And in this country, perhaps more so than the other countries, wasn't there a, a very strong concern about the relationship between Christ and Mary Magdalene in that film? Absolutely. 
the it's it's not only a sexual relationship but dare i say a lustful one um and i think it it ties to a bigger anxiety over the way that jesus's body is portrayed in the film overall right we talked about the passion of the christ where you know the flagellum that would would kill any of us with one or two strokes is used how many times and he stands back up um in in last temptation they're scourging him i think with a reed and he's showing that this is even this is is giving him incalculable pain he's uh you know the the sort of pivotal scene of that film is when he's crucified and speaking with um, the quote-unquote guardian angel who turns out to be the devil tempting him. Yeah, that's um, another great part of the movie, gotta it, say. <laughs> but, it, but it's a turning point, right? And and in that in that moment, he's acknowledging, like, this is painful. Uh, I am not having a good time. And, and that sort of, that portrayal of the body as susceptible to pain and as susceptible to... to sexual feelings was was really off-putting I think for a lot of people. Mm. Leah what do you think? Yeah I, I think um, anything having to do with this how religion and religious people understand the relationship between the spirit and the body is is always going to bring us intention. So I my personal theology is that embodiment is important. It is because of Jesus' humanity and divinity that m- makes that that bridge between the two. Mm-hmm. And 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 so to only see Jesus as sort of this disembodied spirit. I mean, that's actually a heresy to to think of Jesus only as a spirit who, you know never really ate or taught or, or, you know, touched people. It was all just sort of this, um, there's a name for the heresy. I'm sure Ben is going to remember it. Um, you can't remember it either. All right. I'll have to Google it later, but there's a name for this heresy where, where Jesus is, is just disembodied. And, um, that, what that means is that God, that, that God does not care about bodies if, if we have a savior who is just playing, play acting all of this, then what was the point? I want Jesus to care about the bodies that are being crucified today. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which human bodies, Earth's, bo- Earth's body is being crucified. And where is, how, how can Jesus be in solidarity with us if it was never really experienced in the first place? Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a really good point. And, you know, I think that all of us want to, want to acknowledge that, as you said, what's, why did this happen in the first point that God sent his son to earth as a human, as a man. So, and who, who would feel and experience everything that we felt so that he could take that and take all the highs and lows and take all the sins with him on that cross. And, and then three days later, you know, arise. And so if we, if we deny himself the humanity, right, then, then that, that doesn't make any of that true. So, yeah, no, that, that really makes sense. 
And I remember yeah. the, the, the heresy is called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. And it's the belief that, that it was just an illusion. Jesus's body was not real um, and that he only seemed to have died on the cross, but really he was just pure spirit. Um, and then the, the, the opposite of that is Arianism, not Arianism as in like the German Arian thing, but Arianism as in uh, Arius, who was uh, a heretic, who said that Jesus was only a human being mm. and denied his divinity. So the, and, and the church has been dealing with these ideas about Jesus since the very beginning. That's why we have creeds. You know, the creeds tried to say, okay, he was 100% human and 100% divine. And this is a paradox. And some people find themselves in different parts of that continuum. Personally, for me, I need, I need that paradox. I need the 100% divine and the 100% human. I do too. I do too. And, and not only was that what I was taught, I was raised Catholic. Um, I go to lots of different churches now. My two primary churches are um, a non-denominational church and an Episcopal church, but I'll go to any church that I happen to come to. Um, but so not just because that's how I was raised or what I was taught, but it's, but it's what I take from, from the gospels and it's what makes sense to me in, in how he's trying to, I think, communicate that. And I am no Bible scholar. You guys are the Bible scholars here. I am not, but it just, it just makes sense. Um, and it's what I think is in there. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing, and, and I think Ben, I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about this. The, the, the other thing that's really difficult for religious folks is how we think about sexuality and how we think about bodies in relationship to that. Because, um, I mean, one of the other heresies of the church is, is Gnosticism, right? So that you have this secret knowledge and it's all like a head thing. And anything having to do with, with bodies and, and sexuality and, and spit and blood and sweat and tears and all of those things is sullying the divine, and so that's why, um, you know, to, to any idea that Jesus gasp would have had sex is so scandalous, but it has, you know, that's where we get um, movies like, um, what's it, Angels and Demons? No, no. What's the one after Angels and Demons? Um Oh gosh. Well, there was the, the Da Vinci Code. That's it. Da Vinci Codes, right? So that's that whole thing is developed on the idea that that Jesus had a had a child. And and a, and a child and a child and a child like after that um had a descendant. And so there's endless speculation about this. And 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 so that movie, you know, it's an adventure slash religious fiction film, but it just it just highlights how much tension there is around embodiedness and spirituality when it comes to religion. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is kind of an excellent segue into talking about Jesus Christ Superstar in the sense that I, I wanted to talk about that sort of in a frame of bodies and camp and queerness and and the intersections of that with religion. Um, but we'll we'll get to that in a moment. I think in in this sense, you know, in, in my research, this is sort of what I study. I study what um, 
a, a theorist named Nirmal Puar calls bodies out of place, bodies that are not um, sort of perceived to be welcome in particular spaces. And in this, in this sense, I'm talking about uh, queer people in churches, but this applies to so many other, um, this applies on the basis of race, gender, of ability, of places where people are not made to feel welcome. Um, and again, it's it's sort of this issue of, of accessibility. I can understand if people take issue with the idea that, that Jesus was a, a sexual being. I don't know that there's a biblical basis to make that case one way or the other. But the, the idea that Jesus is accessible to us to understand human impulses and um, human failings and, and human confusion is is really sort of a, a beautiful thing because it is, I, I am there in that tension with you of fully human, fully divine. And a thing that's sort of beautiful about that is that we, we get to identify with the human aspects um, and we get to aspire um, to, to be as good a human as he was um, in, in, a way, in a way that we can, I guess. Can, can I say that just in terms of the, with Jesus Christ Superstar, the depiction that I really appreciate, or the, I should say the adaptation, um, was the one from 2018, where we, we saw um, actors of color playing these parts because Christianity in America has been so Eurocentric, so focused on white bodies. And I, that's one of the reasons I appreciated that, that movie to see bodies of color portray this story, um, you know, where John Legend is, is Jesus, um, where um, uh, Brandon Victor Dixon is, is Judas. And, and to see that depiction I think is is very important for our and having an expanded understanding of these stories in different bodies, different cultures, and and I I that's one of my favorite um, uh, uh, versions of the story of Jesus and that particular depiction of Jesus Christ Superstar. Hmm. Well, let's move on to Jesus Christ Superstar. Although although I just jumping back just a little bit, I I also don't know that there's anywhere in the Bible that can tell us whether or not Jesus was a sexual being. And I think that the, I think that the other part of that is because if, if that were to happen and, and we are not told anywhere that he was ever married, then the whole out of wedlock is another piece that a lot of people just can't wrap their heads around. So I can't say yes or no. Um, I, personally, I never really think that that has happened like in my mind I don't think about that I don't think that that happened but I don't know but if it did happen would that sully my reason to think about my savior no no not at all I mean it, it wouldn't but jumping on to Jesus Christ Superstar so uh this is in the 70s I'm a child of the 70s this was my jam I love Jesus Christ Superstar I also love Godspell by the day by the way and we'll, we'll have to talk about that another yeah we gotta time. get we gotta get Godspell in there yeah yeah <laughs> but no I love Jesus Christ Superstar but but there were some issues with it now it certainly is it was it was you know uh, from a Broadway musical and I never I never saw the musical on Broadway so I'm really only talking about the movie but um 
It also had a multicultural cast, but not in the way that the later that later one did because, and I could be wrong, but I think all the people of color, and when I say color here, let's just say black, because that's what I'm talking about. They were either the Zionists or they were Judas. Hmm. And I don't, I can't think of another, you know, maybe positive, more positive role that was played by a person of color. I could be wrong, but that's just the way I remember it the last time I saw it. But I will say that uh, I believe is, is it Carl Anderson who played um, Judas in that? I believe that's his name. He was an amazing actor, performer, singer. I mean, his, and, and Ted Neely as Jesus, I actually thought that the interplay between those two actors was amazing. I love the film. To, I mean, it's again, I loved it. I kind of grew up with it, um, but it's not certainly not a perfect film at all. What are your thoughts? I, I like every adaptation of Jesus Christ Superstar where the actor playing Jesus hits that G5 in Gethsemane. John Legend didn't, but I'm going to forgive him for that. I've tried to do it many times here in my apartment to the detriment of the relationships I have with my neighbors. Um, <laughs> I think I, I mentioned a little bit uh, in my last comment about camp and campiness. Um, and by that, I'm I'm talking about this sort of like art style that's ostentatious, it's it's sort of frivolous, it's shocking, it's excessive. Um, and sometimes this is a really good way to tell a story. I think about the fact that um, this is another movie reference that's not related, but I think about the, the Francis Ford Coppola film Apocalypse Now being a rendition and adaptation of Joseph Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness. And it's it's sort of this very loose interpretation, but it does such a good job of, of telling Conrad's story, right? Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is a loose adaptation of, a, of an earlier story of Pyramus and Thisbe, um, and does a really good job of telling that story through a different lens. And what I love about Jesus Christ Superstar, not any particular adaptation, but the overall sort of setting of this in a, in a campy musical, um, is the same reason why I love Andrew Lloyd Webber's other biblical musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I watched <laughs> about 1500 times as a child. Um, in that it's a, it's, a, it's a catchy, very engaging way to tell the story. And it's telling the story through a different style. It's not this sort of cold, long, epic where it, you sit in the theater for three hours and everyone sort of solemnly walks around and talks to each other. There's dancing and there's singing and there's joy and there's, there's also sorrow and there's pain. Um, but that, that sort of departure from the norm of how to depict the life of Christ, that shift is really, I think, important. And, and like you said, Leah, it's given uh, rise to all these adaptations. We saw the concert in 2018, the live uh, version of that. And we'll see more of those in the future. Um, as long as someone is available to hit that really high note, uh, we will have people wanting to do the, do the show. Well, and what it, all of this is reminding me that Jesus himself was in many ways about camp and about burlesque and about um, using street theater. I mean, Palm Sunday is street theater, right? Here is the supposed king of kings, not riding in on some 
white steed or on a chariot as a military general would do or as the Caesar would do. He comes in on a donkey. <laughs> like the juxtaposition, he's actually, in a sense, making fun of himself as they're saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord on a donkey. Like, I think when we do this in church, we're not, we don't always understand just what this juxtaposition is supposed, what he's doing here. It would be like seeing the queen of England coming in riding on a tricycle, right? Like, like that's kind of ridiculous. And what he's doing here is making fun of the power structures and the trappings of, of kingliness so that the people around him are saying, oh, Wait, like his whole life is a parable, right? All the parables are supposed to break things open and shift things for us. So that scene itself is breaking it open. The turning over of the money changers tables, that is also theater. He's trying to open our eyes, break open the norms of things so that we can see the oppressive nature of them so that we can start to be prepared for the inbreaking of the realm of God. Mm hmm. You know, I always tell my students when I talk to them about media literacy that whatever we see is all, always a reflection of the culture of the day. So every single time, you know, we talk about Amos and Andy, we talk about, you know, early films. I said, you know, what you're seeing, if you're seeing things that you don't like, well, it reflects what was going on of the day. And with Jesus Christ Superstar in the 70s. And of course, you know, by the time we got to the movie, it had already been on Broadway for some time. Um, so let's even say early 70s. Uh, you know, definitely we're seeing of that time. And I think I, I wonder people who that that do depict or do tell these stories, do they try to appeal to the modern day audience when they are when they show this? You know, for example, um, same thing with Godspell, which was a little bit different but it was very much of the day. The music style was pop. You know, Jesus Christ Superstore is a little bit more rock. You know, are they trying to appeal to the audience of the day and in lieu of getting the story right? What do you think? Well, th again, this is something that, that religion always has to wrestle with is are they going to use, like you said, the, the, the culture of the day or are they going to rely on the, the tried and true historical hymns or Gregorian chant? Uh, you know, this was one of the, the again, the scandals of, uh, of the church early on when, when Luther, uh, Martin Luther, had hymns that people could actually sing. And the, 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 the legend is that he actually wrote hymns based on bar tunes. So that people would actually sing them, but it was a way for them to have the faith be translated into their own idiom. He did the same thing with translating the Bible into German, which was the, the language of the people from uh, the Latin or the original Hebrew and Greek. So, so we want to be able to convey that message and tell the story but then you also have that pushback of people who are like, okay, is this, is this just like too much? Are we, are we disrespecting the history that has brought us to this point by pushing the envelope too far? There's always going to be that tension when we see these 
popular cultural portrayals of religion and Jesus in particular? At the at the beginning, I talked about deep history, and I want to give two examples of that um, that that sort of deal with what Leo is talking about, talking about pushback, talking about appeal, um, and talking about the power of the visual when it comes to making Jesus accessible. Um, the the first recorded image of Jesus that we know of from the archaeological record is a piece of graffiti. It comes from the wall of a, a palace structure in Rome, and it is a, a little scratching on the wall of a crucified person who has the head of a donkey. And it says in, in text under it, uh, Alexa Minos worships his God. It's to make fun of someone in this palace complex who's a Christian to say like, look at you, you're worshiping this crucified person. Um, and and I use that as an example of, of Jesus sort of being born in camp in, in the sense of that there, there has always been this, but we we go from, from this earliest piece, which is really not even made to revere Jesus, it's made to ridicule. Um, and and then we move forward. And I think about my my favorite painter of all time, uh, Michelangelo de Caravaggio. He's a Baroque painter. Uh, he painted in the 1590s and the early 1600s. And he comes onto the art scene right after the Renaissance when you see these beautiful, anatomically correct, gorgeous, blemishless portraits of Jesus. Um, and, and everything is so uh, wonderful and neat and clean and mathematical. And Jesus paints, uh, sorry, Caravaggio paints Jesus and the apostles as these everyday Italians. They have dirt under their fingernails. They have dirt on the soles of their feet. Um, they look a little, they look a little, uh, a little messy. And the, the, the powers that be of the day were greatly offended by this. They were like, where did you get your models off the street in Caravaggio? He said, yes, I did get my models off the street because they're just as worthy of depicting the, the divine. And, and so it's, it's useful to think about when we think about the reactions to films like Jesus Christ Superstar or to Last Temptation, that these kinds of reactions have been happening for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, but they, they draw on anxieties or hopes and dreams or cultural norms of the day and play with them in a way that, that brings people in. Um, and, and that I think is why looking at, at the, the silent film depictions of Jesus in the 20s and 30s or these big epics in the 60s, uh, we, we feel disconnected from them because they, they, seem, they seem inaccessible. In, in a way because that that isn't our time and that's not where we were sort of coming of age growing up. Why don't we move on to uh, your third favorite, the Italian film. I wanna point out a couple of things. So we've been talking about these films and we encourage you to take an opportunity and, and, and watch these films, con consume these films during Holy Week as, as we are kind of going through the week and and then you can think about, you know, this conversation and think about, you know, your own ideas about whether or not, you know, how they depicted Christ. Even the next film that Ben is going to talk about, I think, Ben, you were saying that it's available on Amazon Prime? Right. And it, it's actually available on YouTube, very grainy. Um, but that kind of adds to the charm a little bit. 
Um, yeah, the the film is uh, was made, I believe, in 1964. Yes, and it's called The Gospel According to Saint Matthew. It's an Italian film, and it's useful to remember that. Um, films about Jesus were not only made in the United States, even though a majority of them are. Um, the films about Christ have been made all over the world since the, the advent of film. Um, I think some of the first silent films about Jesus were actually Italian. So the this history of, of European filmmaking is also really important. Um, this particular film, ironically enough, was done by a really controversial Italian director named Pier Paolo Pasolini. Um, and if you Google him, you will see some of his other work, which is uh, very not uh, child or family or church friendly. Um, he was very famously an atheist, a Marxist. He was gay. He was not in a great relationship um, with the established church. But he made this really, really faithful adaptation of Matthew's gospel um, in a very sort of realistic documentary style of filmmaking. Um, all of the all of the dialogue is lifted directly from Matthew. There's no extra or extraneous dialogue, as you would even see in not even Mel Gibson does that in Passion of the Christ, right? Uh, there is extraneous dialogue that's not biblical, um, or it's a conglomeration of different books. And Pasolini sticks with one book. He goes through. Um, one of my favorite things about this movie is actually the music. Uh, like I said, it's a documentary style film. Um, using local actors. I believe the, the young man who plays Jesus was um, in his either late teens or early 20s. He was quite young. He's from Spain. Um, a lot of folks that, that Pasolini found, much like Caravaggio, bringing people in off the street to, to be part of the experience. Um, but the music for this film is, is a real mix. Uh, he, he has Bach. He has spiritual music from the Renaissance, but he also has blues from the United States um, from, the, from the 20s and 30s. He uses uh, pieces of the Misa Luba, which is a, a setting of the mass as it's traditionally done in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's a really sort of global take on sacred music that, um, that oversets this really, like I said, very gritty, realistic, um, very bare bones depiction of the life of Jesus. Um, and I, 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 love its, I love its simplicity. I love its honesty because the, the gospel in many ways is, is similarly beautiful because of its simplicity and, and the, the simple but really powerful messages that it conveys. Why do you think this man made a movie like that? As you said, you would not expect him given his background and given the other art that he made to make a film like this? Why do you think so? That's a good question. And it's funny because Scorsese, who made Last Temptation of Christ, is, I believe, a devout Catholic. Uh, so it, it's funny that the super controversial film was made by a traditionally very faithful person. And the, the super faithful film is made by a traditionally faithless person. Interpret that how you will. Um, I, I think I, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for Pasolini, who's no longer alive. Um, I get the sense based on what I've read and heard in interviews that, that he did this because in, in many ways, the story of Jesus isn't, it can be used as an allegory for the human condition. 
Um, and the messages of Jesus are in effect universal. So, you know, the, this, this film did not have fancy sets. It did not have fancy costumes. There weren't special effects. Um, this was, this looks like it was made in a few seaside towns in, in Italy, but it's just as relevant, right? Because the thing that's there um, is, is the message, is the, is the story, is the, the teachings of Jesus. Um, the miracles are there as well, but it's really, really centered on the dialogue and, and Jesus giving parables and giving beatitudes and blessings and prayers. And that, that, kind of, that kind of way in which it serves as an analogy for our condition as, as humans is, is, I think, maybe his motivation. Uh, although, again, I, I'm not exactly sure. And he said in interviews that, that he, was, he, he had a complicated relationship with the church. He, he dedicated the film to the Pope. Um, so it's not to say that he was, while, while he himself did not profess um, to, to be a practicing Christian, I, I don't believe that he, he lacked respect uh, for the church, which is also important to know. But maybe he did. So you don't think that he was snubbing his nose at the church with this film? No, I don't think so. Uh, although maybe it's, I, I like this film maybe because I like Caravaggio and I think they're trying to do the same thing, which is take all the bells and whistles and beautiful colors and robes and jewels and um, choirs of angels away and just expose the, the very sort of center and core of what we're all here for, which is this, um, which is this boundless love and boundless empathy and compassion um, and the power that compassion can have to transform society. And yeah, I, I think it is the same project of, of sort of not reducing it, but, but really bringing out the, the purest essence of, of what Jesus's message and his intervention is. So I've just been saying that we have the opportunity to watch these films during Holy Week. And I'd like to ask uh, each of you, What's the takeaway? Like, so the, these films are different. They have, you know, we're going to take different things away from them. They certainly each have their own look and feel. So Ben, what should we take away from the gospel according to Matthew? It's a great question. I, I think that it's, again, we've, we've talked a little bit about depictions of, of Christ in regard to in regard to race and in regard to setting, really, in, in the sense that, again, these big epics and even a, a lot of modern films um, or, or fairly contemporary films have depicted um, Jesus as a long-haired, blonde, blue-eyed uh, person who looks more like he's from Iceland uh, than from ancient Palestine. And these have ramifications uh, this this does violence to people's bodies and makes people feel excluded from a narrative to which they have claim. And so I, I'm interested in, in promoting this film as sort of an expansion of horizons to know that there are many ways to tell this story and to look beyond the ways you've, you've seen it told before 
um, and to to see the the real beauty and multiplicity of the ways that that the story can be conveyed. Okay, Leah, what should we take away from the Last Temptation of Christ? Well, I think we should take away um, an openness to to thinking about how the relationship between um, God and humanity. I think that we should should think about what are why is it that certain things feel offensive to us and why do certain things feel liberating to us? Remembering that Jesus himself was so offensive to the power structures of, of his time that his message of what Ben said, it just so beautifully of love, compassion, uh, liberation, faith, forgiveness, this was so threatening, so offensive that they had to kill him in thinking that this would make the message go away. The resurrection tells us you cannot kill that love. You cannot kill that compassion. It's going to come back even stronger than before. And so the I'm not saying that there there aren't lines that shouldn't be crossed and and because sometimes there are and we can have those conversations but those conversations are much more important than saying all right we need to cut off the conversation and censor this I would much rather people engage this and engage their critical thinking skills and, and think about the history think about the culture think about their own relationships, representation, all of these things, even if you're not a person of faith, it's worth watching these films because they are part of the cultural lexicon and they self-reference these, you know, each other and parts of our um, modern day songs and movies, even movies that aren't about religion per se, will often have religious references to them. And if you don't know the story, so the story is really important here. If you don't know the story, you're going to miss an entire layer of meaning here than if you would act, you know, just engage this from a level of thinking about it as art, as literature, as something that can expand our human experience deepen our compassion towards each other and, and help to create a, a more peaceful and, and loving society. Well, well said. For me, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, and you guys can jump in on this as well. For me, the takeaway from that is the time in which it was produced and came out. Um, it, it tells the story, but it also shows the culture of the time, you know, early seventies was, you know, kind of a loose culture. Um, it, there's not really drug depiction in the film, but there's, you know, they're, you know, they're kind of chilling out. <laughs> there, 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 there are times in the film where I'm thinking of the, um, the Mary Magdalene song. Oh, what's the name of it? Um, where she, where she's trying to, you know, convince Jesus to lay down and kind of everything, everything's all right. Everything's all right. And chill out. And, and it just, it just kind of has this groove of kind of like a, I don't know, maybe just like a seventies drug culture feel to me. And maybe I'm completely way off, but what I think we see in that film is we see costumes of the day. We see, you know, we, the, the music is definitely of the day. Um, 
you know, certainly the actors that they are using um, are not going to be considered realistic depictions, of course, uh, at all. But I think they were trying to appeal to a culture of that time um, that would enjoy the music, enjoy what it looked like, and then maybe learn a little bit at the same time. I don't think that they were going after true biblical history in this, but it is a very, very appealing film. And I think that um, I think that it's, we can learn from it, but that's, in my mind, not why it was produced. What do you guys think about that? To quote Pontius Pilate, what is truth? Uh, <laughs> and I, I make that joke because again, the, the, first, the first depiction of Jesus had the head of a donkey. Um, sort of all bets are off when it comes to how, how, the, how these depictions can be made. And so the, any of these have as much sort of claim as another. But I agree with you that uh, Jesus Christ Superstar played up communal living a lot more than uh, the epics of the 60s. And, and again, just sort of tastes of the day, but working with biblical sources. I think Jesus Christ Superstar's depiction of communal living is, is more accurate than a lot of the, the epics that sort of assume that they didn't all live in a camp together mm. as a group as they wandered um, from city to city. Mm -hmm. And you get that from uh, Godspell as well. Again, it's much more campy. It's it's got, it's got comedy in it. Um, there's there, clean. It's a lot cleaner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> clean spirited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're they're literally clowns. They're putting makeup on their faces. They're they are. Um, but they're telling the stories. They're telling the parables of Jesus. It's an imaginative uh, retelling. Um, the, the songs are, are very poignant. They're, they're, of course, the reflection of the sort of folksy pop of the day, but it's got staying power. I mean, that, that, that's another, um, depiction of the, 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 the life of Jesus and his crucifixion, but not the resurrection. Interestingly enough, it, it's, it's almost like got the, the, the ending of Mark, the original ending of Mark, where, you know, the women just sort of run from the tomb and they're scared. There's no resurrection in the story of, uh, of Godspell. They, you know, he's, he's crucified on the chain link fence and they take his body. And the next thing you know, they're, they're running through New York City. And so you're thinking, okay, well, I, I guess he's resurrected, but there's no scene in which there is this encounter with the risen Christ. So I think that's another really interesting movie and worth watching during Holy Week. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I love the entries and the exits of those two film films of Jesus Christ Superstar and of Godspell. Jesus Christ Superstar, and it's funny because after after they came out, we did see kids in school buses making making you know hey let's put on a play let's put on a musical that's exactly what they did you know when you see people when you see the very beginning of Jesus Christ Superstar they all come in on a school bus or some kind of a bus they get out they got all their equipment and stuff and then at the end they pack it all up and they leave <laughs> um, what I liked about Godspell though and this is one of the really great things I love about Godspell is at the very beginning when John the Baptist is calling everyone in all their places, in the places of work, in the middle of the street, wherever they are, 
they literally drop what they literally drop what they are doing and they follow and they they follow John the Baptist to get baptized. I love that so much. It just it just touches my heart so much. The ending, yeah, I didn't get that. He, they're, they're, they carry him on their shoulders. They turn a corner and then it's just New York City again with lots of people in it. Don't quite get what they were trying to do there, but really, really love the beginning of that. Well, guys, thank you so much for today, spending some time talking about these depictions, these pop culture depictions. Uh, and Ben, yeah, I, I definitely am going to check out uh, the gospel according to St. Matthew. I think you said it was on Amazon Prime. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to check that out because I have not seen that. Um, but there's so many others, so many others. When you talked about Jesus being depicted as a Scandinavian, I couldn't help but think about Max von Sydow in that depiction. I mean, there's just so many. There's just so many. <laughs> although, although I think he had dark hair in that film, but still, it's just, there's so many depictions. There's a... There's a film that Johnny Cash did called The Gospel Road that's essentially sort of this very long music video of Johnny Cash singing uh, religiously themed songs. And the guy who plays Jesus is literally blonde. Uh, the, <laughs> he is the whitest of all the Jesuses. And, and maybe Jeffrey Hunter has the bluest eyes, but this, this other guy gives him a run for his money. Wow. Yes, yes. I, I encourage everybody to to check out these depictions. I personally, I love watching religious films and even even religious films that are not the depiction of the Christ of the life of Christ. For some reason, they always show the Ten Commandments on Easter, and I don't know why, but I but I love it. I mean, I always watch it. I you know I I always watch it. But but now with streaming and uh, other opportunities, we can watch so much. We can just consume so much. So we have a great opportunity, guys. And I'd love for you to uh, to leave a comment and let us know what your favorite films are and what you get out of them. Um, now, an announcement, I didn't forget. So when Leah and I started talking about this, we just, I mean, we just, we had a Zoom meeting just to chat, just to kind of see where we were going to go with this. I told her that I really liked her article about uh, Cobra Kai an episode of Cobra Kai, which is a show on Netflix. It is a, I almost, I won't say a, a real sequel, but it's what happened years and years after the karate, you know, kid films. And uh, there's an episode in there and I won't talk about it now because we'll talk about it later. And we just started talking about how much we enjoyed, you know, these depictions and all this. And we realized, you know, we've got something to say about this. So uh, in season three of Positively Joy, we will have several episodes where we're going to talk about uh, movies and TV shows and different depictions uh, that have a religious nature. And it's going to be so much fun. And I'm so glad, Leah, you're here to talk about it with me. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much for giving us the opportunity to have this conversation today. I'm like all fired up to go binge watch religious movies during Holy Week. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Ben, thank you so much for being here and you are welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here and to talk with both of you. You've been listening to Positively Joy. I'm your host, Yvette Walker, and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Come on over to our website, PositivelyJoy.com. You can listen to past episodes, you can download a free teachable called Five Ways to Choose Joy, see our merchandise, 
cool t-shirts with our new logo. We've got a lot going on at PositivelyJoy.com. So we hope to see you there. Farewell for now.